Konnichiwa, my friends. Thanks for tuning in to Episode 6 of Master Samurai Tech Radio. Today is September 7th, 2015. Labor Day. Happy Labor Day, everyone. We're your hosts, Samurai Appliance Repairman and Mrs. Samurai. And we are the purveyors of MasterSamuraiTech.com and Appliantology.org. Right, and you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, or you can listen to our YouTube channel, and hey, be sure to tell your friends about us, too. Yep, spread the word. So today's Labor Day. We hope you guys are, if, well, a lot of you will probably listen to this after Labor Day, but hope you had a good day taking a little time off of your labors. Smoking pork butts or whatever tradition you guys have, hanging out, drinking, you know, Michelob, good friends, some commercial. Or maybe like something that. a little, little better. But uh, we last week announced that we were running a special discount off of tuition in honor of Labor Day that was going to end at midnight tonight. But, you know, we're, we're sort of feeling like a little inclined to, to let that go got, on for a little longer. We were just blown away at the number of people that apparently were just waiting for some sort of tuition discount. It's a you know 10% tuition discount with a Labor Day 2015 no spaces coupon yep. code that you can use on the enroll page. Uh, that's still active, and I've never seen, we've had just a number of people come in and enroll in the course bundles, right. one after another, after another, so. Well, and that's, I mean, the bundles is where really you save a lot if you get 10% off. It and does make sense to do yep. it that way. Definitely, and it's awesome because the, the courses are yours for life, so, you know, take advantage of the discount now, and it's not like you have to take them within a certain period of time. Right. They're there when you're ready. You've got lifetime access to them. You're going ahead and getting them at a big discount, and you just uh, start working on the courses when you're ready. Right, so just in case people are hearing this and, and had not known about the discount or hadn't made a decision, we don't want you to be downhearted and realize that, oh, I missed it. So we're gonna extend it for a little longer. We are, we're gonna, go keep, we're gonna keep it going. We had such good response to it, uh, which really blew us away that, and gratefully, um, yes, that yes. Uh, we're gonna extend it on out for the rest of this week and through uh, this coming weekend. Right, so through Sunday night, mm -hmm. and so it's simple. The coupon code is Labor Day twenty fifteen. No two, spaces. Right, two zero one five, and you just enter that at the checkout during the uh, on the enroll page at the website. And it'll take ten percent off your tuition. So yes. All right, so we've got some industry news and trends. Yep. Today we're talking Beko. Beko, like a big old bird with a beko. Uh, B-E-K-O, so not exactly, hmm. but hmm. now we all have the image in our minds. <laughs> so Beko, I had never heard of until relatively recently, uh, but they are a huge European brand. They What's are the UK or what? Yeah, number one brand in the UK, but sold around the world, Europe and Asia. They are going to be entering the American market uh, as either later this year or early 2016. I'm not sure wow, yet. Coming in like gangbusters. Who owns Beko? Where, well, where are they from? This is, we need to learn about these guys yeah, they're, they're going to start showing up at some point. So they are owned by the Archilek Group, and that is a Turkish company. They are the second largest home appliance manufacturer in Europe. The, the Turks are coming. It's the rise of the Ottoman Empire again. It's, Maybe, <laughs> but they're following in the footsteps of so many other manufacturers where they, they had started manufacturing appliances in Turkey, I think mid 20th century. 
um, and through just their natural growth, but then acquisitions of other brands over the years, they have grown to be a really big player worldwide. Uh, for example, one brand that they acquired in the early 2000s is Blomberg, which is available in the U.S. Um, it's very, very tiny niche. Now, where's so Blomberg from? Blomberg was originally a German brand. Ooh, so, boy, they're just like international yeah. conglomeration yeah. thing going on here. And an interesting side note about Blomberg is they actually make the refrigerators for Bosch. So you guys uh, who work on Bosch, I know I've worked on several Bosch refrigerators, but you have unwittingly worked on a Blomberg, now Turkish-owned mm-hmm. product. Yep. So so there's like an analogy here with U.S. brands, like Whirlpool owns Maytag and Amana. So we've got this kind of... Right. Uh, so this Archelic group owns mm-hmm. has several brands, but Bico... Uh, appears to be their biggest international brand. And, and that's what they're, br- what they're bringing over to this that, country yes. as its own brand. Yes, and okay. they're going to be manufacturing appliances specifically for the U.S. market because we have, di- are, in the U.S., we have different uh, demands for appliances. They don't usually have to be as small, for example. In Europe and Asia, the you know compact is, is one of the big things. So, so yes, Bico has a huge presence in Europe and Asia and now is setting its sights on America. And here's an example of their marketing hype. <laughs> Bico's success is based on offering appliances that combine innovation and reliability, good design and functionality, resource efficiency, and sophisticated cutting-edge technology. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds like Well, that's every manufacturer pap, is going to say that, pap, right? Pap and pablum. Did that say anything different than any other it, manufacturer out there? It said nothing there? substantive. It just sounded like I know. It, yeah. so. But the fact that they've gotten such a big market share in the UK is kind of interesting and maybe does portend that they might do all right here. Um, I do have an... But couple- what's the, I guess the, the, I want to just jump to this uh, real quick. The reason why we're bringing this up and the reason why uh, we as appliance techs should care about this is because this is Samsung and LG redo or uh, what is it uh, revisited it's that pattern where we've seen this before with samsung lg and when they first came on the scene everybody's like oh they're only sold in like best buy they're they're junk they'll never catch on and of course now they're like the fastest growing brands gaining market share faster right. than anybody else i mean this could happen here again and so what we're doing is we're giving you guys an early heads up don't and go ahead and and and, and take on a posture that you're going to learn about these brands because they're going to come on and start gaining market share. You can't just pass them off because you're going to start losing market share in your service company if you don't stay up to speed on these things. Another example how the industry is always changing and we got to change with it. Yep. Yeah, I, I call it the internationalization of the appliance market. Yep. Um, and this is potentially a, a new chapter that may or may not be significant. We'll see how it plays out. But certainly nobody 10 years ago would have probably thought that Samsung and LG would have captured maybe 20% of the American market, which they, that's the estimate right now that right. they've gotten. And, and so if your business model is, oh, I'm never going to work on Samsung, LG, fill in the blank, whatever the new uh, kid on the block brand might be, you're just going to slowly go out of business while other companies come along who do work on those and they're going to eat your lunch. Right. And, and it's not just that these are these appliances happen to be made in, in different countries or you know their parent 
companies are, are foreign, but they will come with unique technologies that maybe haven't yet been popular here, such as heat pump dryers, or um, I was reading in the Beco material, they were talking about they have uh, a special function in their, or feature in their washing machines that helps to remove pet hair from it. And I'll just point out something on, for example, heat pump mm -hmm. dryers. That's not really an example, technically a, an example of new technology. That's old technology combined in a different application. So just using a standard refrigeration cycle running in reverse to add heat to the load of clothes. I think some other companies are coming out with this as well. And then there's the microwave dryer that I've read about before. And we'll talk about that in a future episode. But again, old technology, different application. Not so much innovative technology uh, in, the, in the true sense of the word. Um, but for example, like a linear compressor, for example, we're going to talk about that in a future episode. Maybe this one if we have time, but linear compressors, that's kind of new technology. That mm -hmm. really is where the compressor just go, goes back and forth in a using a linear motor rather than a motor that has a rotating shaft. That's new technology. So I just wanted to uh, clarify, you know, what they like to call new technology is really just using old stuff in different ways. Sure. I mean, like, here's one example. They're going to they have ionizer technology in their dishwashers that runs uh, for a few minutes every hour to keep odors from developing while people, you know, you start loading your dishwasher and if you don't run it regularly, it starts to smell. Um, so that's why, you know, when people end up pre-washing nice their dishes almost before they put them in. So, right. you know, things like that. Nothing that's, I mean, all of this is easily learned and, and, and dealt with by a, a technically proficient absolutely and it's masterized hammer i trained tech. <laughs> yes and it's also just a matter of learning how they've implemented these different technologies so you, you we're going to want to get when they as they come on the scene the big challenge for us as techs is getting access to service manuals and tech sheets for these things and this is also points out the importance of going to annual training events like asti that comes around uh, every year at uh, some what this year it's going to be well actually 2016 in mm -hmm. February, it's going to be in Miami, but, but there will be annual training events. And sure enough, soon enough, I'm sure, Beco will be there as one of the manufacturers offering training. Like we've seen other, uh, you know, Samsung and LG are both big presences there. Yeah, and other, Bosch. Well, Bosch has been, but they've been around a while. But I'm right. speaking of newer brands that are kind of newish, and there have been other brands that have there, more Liebherr and some mm -hmm. of the other brands that have been there offering training on their product to get techs familiar with their stuff and get people able to work on them because the manufacturers want this too. They want to have a uh, sufficient network of technicians who are able to fix their stuff. I mean, you're not going to get a good uh, reputation among retailers or, or people who are selling your product if there's nobody out there to fix it when it inevitably breaks. Oh, yeah. Yep. So this will keep you uh, updated on Beco and other entrants, potential entrants to the market yep. as this makes our jobs interesting. It really. does. It does. And I love how it's always changing like that. And it's always new stuff to learn. So, all right, well, let's go ahead and uh, take a quick break here and we will be right back. Thanks for listening. You are listening to Master Samurai Tech Radio. Hey, all Scott here for Samurai Tech Academy at MasterSamuraiTech.com. Modern appliance repair requires true technicians who can troubleshoot their high-tech electronics. If you're young and looking to make some real money, or you've been at it a while and just need to keep your skills up to date, Samurai Tech Academy teaches it all. And they'll also show you the business, how to own and run your own. Take a free sample course to see how easily you can learn appliance repair from MasterSamuraiTech.com. Use coupon code Scott Horton for 10% off any course or set of courses at MasterSamuraiTech.com. 
Hey y'all, welcome back. You're listening to Master Samurai Tech Radio. I'm Samurai Appliance Repairman. Here with Mrs. Samurai on Labor Day. Labor Day edition. We are so. laboring for you. <laughs> it's a labor of love. <laughs> so now we want to get into a little bit of appliantology news. Actually, there's a great post that uh, Walter, his uh, appliantology name is The Appliance Technician, uh, posted a great post on his blog over at appliantology.org. He's got a blog, and anybody, any uh, tech member can have a blog. We encourage you to do that. A uh, great way to just document and memorialize what you know. Other techs can refer to it. Yep, at, join in on the conversation. Yeah, and, and, and Walter has posted something there, a much-needed article, and explaining this difference between HE and non-HE, high-efficiency HE detergents and non-HE detergents, and why it's important that HE detergents be used in HE machines. And this is important for you, as for us, as uh, plants techs to know, so that we can explain it to our customers and educate them on these types of things. Because so, aren't there, there are actual malfunctions that can occur oh, absolutely. by using the wrong you detergent? Use, you use non-HE detergents, and you, a lot of them, and I've actually been in homes before, you uh, I re- read the label on it, and it has things in there like sodium hydroxide. Well, in case you don't know, sodium hydroxide is, a, is an extremely caustic chemical, very high pH. Now, and we're talking about the eco the eco soaps, right? right. The eco soaps. I was and I was in a house reading an eco bottle. I, I think I said that, but um, so in a, and that's one of the ingredients that's on there. I'm not saying all eco soaps have that, but a lot of them do this, and this is how they clean a lot of them by corrosion. I mean, I've been in manufacturer training classes where they talk about this as well. We've been through training uh, for uh, deter- specific detergent training, and many of you uh, might have gone through the same thing. But these non-HE specifically the eco detergents will have corrosives in there that are actually harmful and damaging to the machine they will can do things like damage the metal through corrosion you know you things like sodium hydroxide i was mentioning very high ph creates this caustic you know high alkaline slurry circulating throughout the machine damaging the metal parts so you get things like drum support spider failure on these things you've seen everybody's seen mm. pictures of those ouch um, you use just regular non-HE detergent, not even the, necessarily the eco type, but just the old school detergents, and you use a lot of it because everybody like. Where you, you throw in like a cup of Tide or right, something. Right, and it's because people like to see suds. Well, suds are actually bad when you wash because they create an insulation between the detergent and the soils. But they also can create problems with pump residue buildup, like in the domes, a pressure dome, where the pressure tube or transducer feels that pressure. You get suds in there, and then they dry, and they block that up. And so the transducer or pressure switch never feels that change in pressure caused by a rising water level. So you get things like washers flooding or throwing a, lo- a no-fill or low-fill error code when, in fact, there's plenty of water, maybe even too much, in the drum. Right. I think our we have some fancy schmancy front loader that seems like it actually detects when there's too much suds and it will do something about it. It will alter You'll get some of the, the more sophisticated the cycle, yeah. Some of the more sophisticated machines will be able to detect this and, and try to correct it, for yeah, it. Yeah, it knows it's not a good thing. The main thing though with H E detergents, and this is what a lot this is the main takeaway point that you guys wanna understand this so you can explain to your customers why it's so important to use them. 
These detergents are specifically engineered to work in low water environments. Instead of relying on lots of sudsing action or corrosive action, they actually use special molecules. They're bipolar molecules. It doesn't mean they're psychotic, <laughs> but it does mean that it has two different chemical ends on it. One end is called hydrophobic, meaning it hates water, hydro water phobic fear. So it hates water, but it happens to love crap on the clothes like dirt and soils and soil particles it, and it, it will it's these big like chelating things that, like grappling claws grabs onto these things and hangs onto it and forms this tight bond with it the other end of that very same molecule with that hydrophobic end is called a hydrophilic end again hydro water philic love so it loves water and so what happens and it's all in the same molecule the same exact molecule so and it's all one thing and it's got a hydrophobic and a hydrophilic end. So the hydrophobic end grabs the soil, grapples onto it, bonds with it. And the hydrophilic end is loves the water, stays in the water. Mm -hmm. And so when the, when the machine goes and dumps, the hydrophilic end makes it soluble and it goes out with the rinse water, with the dump water during the exactly uh, pump. Exactly what you want. And that's how it works. And it's got to work that way in a low water environment. This idea of using 56 gallons in a drum and then having lots of suds in there, that ain't the way it works anymore. And oh. so it's a matter of customer education. It reminds me of our conversation about dishwashers. That's how dishwashers used to work. Right, yep. right. And yep. I think we did talk about uh, dishwasher detergents in mm -hmm. another um Yeah, it's very similar. Very similar sim idea. Similar transformation that's gone on here. But uh, So anyway, I encourage you to go look for the appliance technician's blog post over at Applientology. If you go to the homepage there on the right-hand side, you will see uh, recent blog posts there. So as of this recording date, it's still listed there. If not, you can always just click into the yellow bar up top where it says blogs and find his blog and find that post there and read up on it educate yourself educate your customers and you will be the that's an, another way of adding value to your service call so people oh, see yeah. wow that's why i'm paying a million dollars to have him repair <laughs> my washing machine yeah i mean you need to know what you're talking about not just with what's going on and what's potentially broken but how to use these things right you need to understand the technology of the machine and the technology of the things that are made to work in the machines so the other thing i wanted to bring up about appliantology is this difference in answering tech questions versus answering grasshopper questions. And I'm talking about people who start topics over there um, trying to get help or information on a particular problem that they're working on. The way I look at this, there, there is a difference in what I expect. If I see someone's a grasshopper, now, first of all, I should preface all of this with the fact that not all grasshoppers who post there are DIYers or you know, non-professionals. Some of them, in fact, are techs. You can tell, they'll even say that in their post, or you can tell by the types of things that they're asking, or they're saying, you know, my customer this, or I went out my second call that, and so that kind of thing. So you get this, sometimes it's very unambiguous that they, they are techs, but they're posting as a grasshopper. If I know that I'm dealing with a DIYer uh, in a topic that they've started a question, that affects how I'm going to respond to that topic. So, for example, I know I'm not going to be able to get into detailed troubleshooting with them generally unless they give me some indication that they have the ability to even engage in that level of conversation. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to expect a whole lot out of them. So a lot of times my responses to them, if it's a problem I know that it, or I'm pretty sure it's going to fix it, I might just post a part and say, uh, try this part. If that doesn't fix it, 
return it for a refund. And it's no problem if they buy the part through our parts links there, that right. even on electrical parts, circuit boards, and things like that. Because otherwise, if they don't have access to the tech info, this is my thinking on this, and they don't have access to it, and they don't know how to troubleshoot, and they can't do particular voltage measurements, they can't report on these things, it's really no, no use getting into that with them. And instead, they're just there looking for the simple solution. So I give it to them. Now, if someone's a tech, even if they're just a Grasshopper member, and they're, but they're posting as a tech, and they come around and they're asking Grasshopper-like questions, they just say, I'm going to work on such and such appliance. And, you know, it's making, temperatures are bad. Say, say they're going on a GE refrigerator. Temperatures are bad. Um, I'm thinking it's the control board. What should I, what should I check? Mm-hmm. And they've not done, they've not, they don't have the tech sheet. They've not looked at the service manual. Uh, I'm I'm going to hold them to a much higher standard, and yeah, you should. They're probably not going to get a pass on that. So I'm going to first thing I'm going to do is ask them why haven't they looked at the and uh, why have they looked at the service manual or tech sheet formulated a strategy? What measurements did they make on the thermistors? This type of thing. I mean, you'll you'll hear other people at Appliantology asking the same thing too. Durham Appliance, Brother Durham, mm-hmm. uh, Brother Appliance Man. These guys are going to get on you too. So if you're a tech. Uh, we expect techs to operate and be performing at a at the level of a tech and doing tech type stuff and reporting tech type stuff and getting tech type help. And of course, if you're a tech, also it's okay to kick the tires a little bit and ask a few questions as a grasshopper checking it out. But then, you know, we we got guys who've got like 30, 40, 50, 100 posts as a grasshopper, and you know they're techs. But they're uh, they're well. They're not not investing in their profession. They're not treating it like a profession. And you can tell by the way that they're handling service calls, the types of questions they're asking. They, you know, I say tech in quotes. They're really parts changers, and that's the kind of help that they're wanting to get. They're trying to get parts changers help, and so, and those are kind of the kind of guys that are really going to be riding off into the sunset, and they're really getting left behind with this new stuff out there. This stuff is learnable. These guys, these guys could easily make the transition from being parts-changing monkeys to being real technicians. For example, the courses over at MasterSamuraiTech.com. But you get a lot of these guys, they're, it's, they're either too lazy or they claim they're too broke. And if you're too broke to be able to afford uh, training for yourself, then you're probably not charging your, your, for your services correctly. And you know what the reality is? If you don't know much, you shouldn't charge much. Right. It's a, it's a cycle that yes. feeds on itself. So, you know, you, you and other techs that are active at Appliantology, which is such a great support place for techs, mm-hmm. but you guys are trying to help these guys break out of the cycle. And many yeah. have with your very gentle and loving encouragement. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, they, they see, you know, there are plenty who have seen the error of their ways and they, they also love seeing the results, uh, what happens to their businesses once they do start to get some of these skills and treat it more like a profession. Right, and we, you know, we actually get emails from people like this. This is one I got uh, recently. Um, uh, a tech emailed me and uh, here's this was relating to some uh, master samurai tech training right that we did and it was a it was a webinar I put on and um, it was a, this was a veteran in the tech and he was skeptical of it because we were going through like what he thought was too basic stuff you know basic electricity circuits and it's like oh I know all that stuff a lot of times it's a situation of you don't know what you don't know until you really come to know it then you, you find out what you didn't know that makes sense uh, yes and the email, so the email was, um, it read like this. So 
I was one of the skeptical seasoned veterans in the business, but your training has helped me to understand schematics much better. And importantly, more importantly, I have turned that understanding into money. And that's yep. kind of the bottom line. Learn more, earn more. The more you know, the more you should be able to charge because you really and truly are a skilled tech, bringing a lot, lot of sophisticated skills to bear on someone else's problem for which they hired you to fix. Yep, and it'll improve your reputation. You'll turn customers into cheerleaders, improve your first call completes, all things improve that add to your... Improve your job satisfaction. Yep. I mean, one thing... I, 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 I'm like this. I hate doing something that I don't really know what I'm doing. It's like, mm -hmm. man, I know there's some stuff here I should know about. I should really have oh, a... it gives you that awful feeling in yeah, your gut. Yeah, you should really have a deep understanding about what you're doing, how the circuit works, and how, it, how these boards are communicating with each other. And this stuff is knowable. This stuff is learnable. And so that's part of what we do at Master Samurai Tech. So anyway, I just wanted to pass along and share some of that stuff with you guys. So... We are going to take another little break here, and we're going to come right back. Don't go away. We're going to come back with a section on Tech Talk. We're going to talk about voltage sag and voltage drop and lots of other cool stuff. So hang on. We'll be right back, and you are listening to Master Samurai Tech Radio. Hey, all Scott here for Samurai Tech Academy at MasterSamuraiTech.com. Modern appliance repair requires true technicians who can troubleshoot their high-tech electronics. If you're young and looking to make some real money, or you've been at it a while and just need to keep your skills up to date, Samurai Tech Academy teaches it all. And they'll also show you the business, how to own and run your own. Take a free sample course to see how easily you can learn appliance repair from MasterSamuraiTech.com. Use coupon code Scott Horton for 10% off any course or set of courses at MasterSamuraiTech.com. All right, guys, thanks for hanging in there. Thanks for sticking around for your favorite segment, Tech Talk. And you're listening to Master Samurai Tech Radio. I'm Samurai Appliance Repairman. And Mrs. Samurai is still here along for the ride. All right, and today in the Tech Talk, I wanted to get into two different things. And it came up, uh, actually, Tim Cooper uh, voxed me and suggested this topic, told me a repair story that I'm going to share with you. These concepts of voltage sag versus voltage drop very very different things and i'm going to explain by way of this story that illustrates a situation of voltage sag now voltage sag simply put is just when the voltage drops below its typical tolerance so you got 120 volts the typical tolerance and variation allowed in line voltage at an outlet service voltage is plus or minus five percent there might be a little bit of variation in that, but that's like a typical, very good uh, standard variation for that. It varies a little bit by uh, power company and region. Um, sometimes you're allowed to go up 10%, or, you know, but you're right in there. So 120 volts, so what's 5% of 120 volts? Six. So six, so take 120 minus six. So you're talking like 114 volts mm -hmm. would be the lowest that you could go typically. Well, Tim voxed me with a story about a Whirlpool vertical modular washer that his company was had worked on with repeated actuator failures. 
just like in short periods of time, it would go like a couple weeks and one would fail and finally another, a month or two and it would fail. All right. So those aren't the most robust machines, but even that's uh, right. a and little they, ridiculous. And it is a high failure item. That, mm. that actuator is a very failure prone item. It's usually the optical sensor in that thing, but something else was going on with this thing, yeah. uh, with these repeated failures. So finally, uh, Tim's boss, I think it was his boss, um, went there and decided to check the outlet. And a good thing to do right off the bat is ver verify your power supply. Well, he did that one time, and he was there, and he measured 108 volts at the ah. wall outlet. Well, that's way below 120 yeah. volts. In fact, you're talking, what is that, like 20%? Yeah. Um, that's No, 10%. Yeah, because 10% would be That's 10% down. So that's, you're, that is going to be called out of tolerance. So what's the effect? And that's called voltage sag. When the actual measured voltage that at the outlet that you're measuring now, there's no current flow. You're just measuring that, that voltage sag. Or maybe there, it, it is supplying voltage to the load, but you are measuring that voltage supply at the source. That, so that's what we're talking about is measuring the voltage at the source, whether it's a loaded source, you know, something's plugged into it and running, or an unloaded source. You just got your probe stuck in the outlet. But you're measuring the voltage, the source voltage. That when that source voltage sags, particularly below that 5% tolerance, um, that is called voltage sag, and that's a problem. The problems it causes is, so you've got this AC voltage that goes into these boards, these microprocessor boards, and the boards do a couple things with it. One, they'll use the AC voltage as a working voltage to power the AC loads, and they'll switch that around with triacs or relays. The other thing, though, that they do, with, that these boards do with this AC voltage is they run it through a rectifier and filter, and they make their DC supplies out of it to operate the DC logic portion of those boards. Well, oh. if, the, if, the, if your starting voltage is below spec, 108 volts, say, uh, which is well below the rated line voltage, then the output product of that rectifier and filter is going to be something less than, let's say you got a 12-volt and a 5-volt DC power supply, real common control scheme. You're not going to have those rated DC voltages. Now, your 12-volt power supplies, often they're used to power things like uh, DC relay. Your 5-volt power supply, however, that is used to create your logical one. Your digital trains and the way these boards all talk to each other and internally with itself is, is through... Uh, digital pulse trains. It's just a, a, if you can imagine, a train of square waves. And, in, and it's serial communi data communications, ones and zeros. When, it, when, we're when I say ones and zeros, I'm talking logical ones, logical zeros. These logic conditions correspond to an actual measurable voltage. Logical one is typically five volts. Logical zero is something around zero volts. Now, I say something around and typically like that because you've always got noise so a logical one has to stand out from the background noise you may have background noise in that circuit that maybe is consistent maybe it's as high as three volts and if the if the chips that are trying to decode that serial data coming in if it can't pick out a logical one from the background noise you've got no communications oh. going on and so if your DC, if your five volt dc power supply what's supposed to be five volts say it's only making now four volts DC or three and a half volts mm -hmm. DC and that's that's that becomes the best logical one condition it can do well if you've got a background noise of two and a half or three volts the chip that it's talking to whether it's a microprocessor an EEPROM or whatever wherever it's going talking to another board through a data cable a lot of noise through connections and cables and stuff 
you can't pick out a logical one from a zero. It all sounds the same. It all sounds the same. looks the same. Looks the same. Looks like zeros. Looks like a bunch of zeros. There's no communication going on. So that's the, the problem this can cause, and that's probably, that may be one of the things that they were seeing with this. That's a problem that voltage sag can cause, something to be aware of when you're dealing in a digital environment. When you have low AC supply voltage, you're going to have low, below spec logical voltage, huh. and which will be difficult to pick that out from the background noise. Now, how is this different from voltage drop? A lot of people confuse these terms. These are technical terms, by the way. Voltage sag, very specific technical meaning. You say this to any other technician or electrician or power person, it has a specific look-upable, standardized, agreed-upon definition. Mm-hmm. It's just part of the vocabulary of, of electricity. Voltage sag. Voltage drop is another one just like that. It has a specific technical meaning. Now remember we talked about measuring voltage sag and we do that by measuring the source voltage, whether it's loaded or unloaded. Voltage drop specifically refers to the voltage that is dropped across a load when there is current flowing through that load. So you are measuring with your meter typically a DMM, you're measuring the voltage on either side of that load with a probe on either side of that load and you're looking to see what that drop and it'll be some portion of the source voltage that will be dropped, they call it dropped, across that load. And the the amount of voltage that will be dropped across that load will be uh, directly proportional to the resistance of that yes. load, because E is equal to I times R. Of course, it's going right. to be equal to proportional to the current, but the current's going to be kind of set by the rest of the circuit. So you've got um, uh, current flowing through a load that creates a voltage drop. Let's say you had, just to give you an example how voltage drop feels or acts or looks. If you ha- Let's say you have a series circuit, and you have three loads in that circuit. And let's just say they're all the exact same resistance. Just for, just for grins, they're all. Let's just say they're all 10 ohms, um, and you got it's hooked up to 120 uh, volt supply source. Each and and so each um, load at 10 ohms, you, that combined resistance will be like 30 ohms. So we can figure out what that current will be through that circuit. I is equal to E over R. Mm-hmm. Um, so you could do that math if you wanted to. But the main point I'm trying to get across is that with each of those 10 ohm loads they will each drop ex- a third, exactly a third of the source voltage. Why? Well, because there are three loads. And so that voltage drop will divide across those three. If there were only two, they would drop half. Right. And they each have the same resistance. Right. They each, that's, again, the, the, we're going we're gonna to add a little mm-hmm. wrinkle to that. So, and, and we're saying they're, they're all 10 ohms. So whether you're talking two or three loads, if it's three, they're each going to drop exactly a third of that 120 volts, which is what? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't know you were going to ask me. 40. Okay. So, and if, you, and if you've got just two loads and you, you're dropping, uh, each, each of those loads will drop exactly 50%, exactly half of that source voltage across each load. Again, same exact resistance of each load. And that's going to be how much? 60 volts. So, yeah. See, it's that simple. It's, it works that simply. So now what will happen, let's say you have two loads and one of them is 10 ohms and the other one is... 100 ohms. So it's a difference of 10 to 1. Mm-hmm. Well, so what that means is that the load with the higher resistance, E is equal to I times R, 
And in fact, the load with the 10, the 100 ohm load is going to drop 10 times more voltage across it than the other load with only a 10 ohm drop. It's a simple ratio like that. Just see in your mind, E voltage is equal to current times resistance. As that resistance goes up, the voltage dropped across that load goes up. Mm -hmm. So that's, uh, that's, the, that's what voltage drop is. The bottom line with voltage drop is that you're talking specifically about loads and current flow through a load and what that load is dropping. Voltage sag, completely different. You're talking about the voltage source and right. what it's doing, whether it's loaded or unloaded. And by that, I mean plugged in or not plugged in to the wall outlet. So getting back to the voltage sag situation, um, I mean, this is pretty, isn't this unusual to have something like this? Or? That much of a sag, yes it is. But you still want to check, um, that's part of what you want to do when you first start troubleshooting something is verify a proper power supply. Mm -hmm. So you want to measure your power supply. Um, and it's probably a good idea if you've got a, a particular, now I don't no, normally do a, a loaded and unloaded check on a power supply unless I suspect there's some weird stuff going on like multiple failures of the same part in a right. short period of time. Then you got to start thinking, do I have noise coming in? Do I have voltage sag situation causing problems? And then, you know, you can have spikes and things coming in and slamming components and, and other kind of garbage in the line. There are specific technical terms for those as well, transients and swells and things like that. But, um, yeah, so normally you want to verify your power supply, but it is unusual uh, mm -hmm. for... The variance that Tim was telling me about, uh, 108 volts, you, 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 uh, what are the, some things that can cause that? High resistance connections somewhere upstream. So as current starts flowing, supplying the load. Uh, so I'm, we're talking in the household wiring somewhere, maybe at the circuit uh, breaker box, maybe in the outlet itself, there's a high resistance connection somewhere. So as current starts flowing, supplying the washing machine to do its work, and you get current flowing, you know, for all the way from the circuit breaker box into the appliance and then back to the circuit breaker box through neutral. Uh, so if there's a high resistance connection somewhere along the way in series with the load, treat the load as the washer itself, it's going to drop some of that current. So you're going to have that high resistance connection creating an unnecessary, undesirable voltage drop. That voltage drop in turn can cause a voltage sag that is can be measured and manifested at the voltage source the outlet does that make sense yeah and uh, these kinds of things are always great to hear about these little you know war stories and things from other texts because even if they're not common you build up this little uh, you know toolbox of knowledge about these little oddball situations so that when you when you're faced with something unusual you can start to think about these absolutely oh just one more thing that i wanted to measure, uh, mention before i forget the other thing that can cause uh undesired voltage sag at an outlet particularly when the outlet becomes loaded in other words the appliance plugged in and turned on is undersized wires a wire with insufficient ampacity and huh. if that's what's going on that's also a dangerous situation because those, those wires will tend to get hot so and heat up and that's you, never good the next thing you get house fire so anyway i just wanted to bring those points out 
Um, I thought that was a good topic for discussion here. And then, yeah, and share. I mean, any of you other techs, we'd love yes. to hear these stories, and and we'll talk about them here if you send them to us. Right. So, um, send us your tech tip, war story, topic idea, whatever it is you'd like to hear us talk about. You can uh, shout at me on uh, Voxer or leave a comment in uh, at the blog post for this episode at the Master Samurai Tech blog or at the YouTube channel where we'll have it posted there. So whatever, whatever works for you, um, let, us, let us know. Let us know what you'd like to hear us talk about because we're always looking for that. And moving on, I wanted to talk about some, some other thing, get, move away from the technical stuff, so the so-called hard skills, and then we wanted to look at some of this. So there's another requested uh, thing that we talk about, it, and that's the soft skills. Yes. Now, one thing I want to – I thought I think these are kind of ironically named because – the reality is that the hard skills, the technical stuff, circuits, voltage, all that kind of stuff, you can learn these in weeks or months. Um, but the soft skills, which is all about dealing with people, you know, that whole human mm -hmm. interaction, you can spend a lifetime trying to master the soft skills, and some people never get it. So ironically, the, the, the soft skills are actually much more difficult to learn, I think, for, for most of us as techs, and I think that's probably one of the reasons we are techs, whereas the hard skills tend to come a lot more easily for most of us. But, so that's why I wanted to talk about some of these soft skills, and at least one of them, one particular aspect of it on service calls, dealing with dogs. And we're talking about actual canines here. Canine dogs, yes, not, yeah. <laughs> so, yes. Oh, especially when they're like the little yippers. So you can get, they can take on two types. A, a, a fear barker that's just constantly yipping, especially when you have two of them and they're setting each other off and you're having to deal with that noise through the whole service call. Or you can even get them where they're aggressive. You know, a larger dog, it's usually female dogs. They tend to be fear biters, fear barkers. I don't know what it is about the mm -hmm. female dogs, but I mean, I've almost been bitten by them. Had to had a dog come up and try to bite me, lunge, and I kicked it, you know, in the face with my. I was wearing boots at the time, uh, and then uh, had to do that. But uh, Patricio, man, I mean, one oh, time, yeah, that he, was a story. He was on a service call, and I think it was a pit bull, uh, and the, he kept the dog kept lunging at him and snapping at him. He repeatedly asked the owners. To get the dog out of, uh, you put please put the dog away. Then he bit at his tool bag and bit at his tool bag actually, and and uh, the dog at one point finally just lunged at him in midair, and, and Patricio had a screwdriver in his hand and stuck it right in that dog's neck. I mean, just buried it in the dog's neck. And the course, dog actually ripped his shirt, so yeah. it's not that he was just jumping on him; he was biting. Yeah, and yeah. So so he ruined a good shirt and got a chunk taken out of his tool bag. But he and I think he might have. I don't know if he left the screwdriver. There. <laughs> and then the worst, <laughs> to make it all yeah. bad, worse, he lost a good screwdriver. No, he, I'm, I don't know if he got that <laughs> or not. But so that's the whole point of um, how do you deal with dogs that are either dangerous. Or they're just incessantly noisy. And they're kind of two different... They seem like two very different problems. But in both cases, it's a, it's a uh, challenge where you need to communicate with that customer that there is a problem. Right. You need to take control of your work environment. And there are various ways that comes into play. But in terms right. of dogs, yeah, you, you've got to talk to the customer about it. And we know this is delicate because people love their animals. And right. they try to, don't they tell you that, oh, he's fine. Right. I've had, I've had, I can't tell a number of times I've heard that. And that's the fact that's what they were telling Patricio. Oh, he's fine. He won't bite. And of course, the dog goes and lunch, had already taken a chunk out of his tool bag and his shirt. Mm -hmm. So, um, so you, you can't. Bottom line is, if a dog is acting unruly. You don't know what that dog's going to do. So, 
And as, you, as, uh, as Susan mentioned, you have to take control of your work environment. When I'm there working on an appliance, that is my space. That's my work environment, and I need to control it. Uh, you know, and maybe it's less threatening. Maybe they just come by and the dog's like getting all in your tool bag, maybe taking some tools out and running around with it like it's a big game. And I can't have that, have that either. So mm -hmm. I've, I ask the... Uh, you can do it nicely, but um, again, this is part of that uh, soft skill thing, but you've got to ask in a non-emotional, not, maybe even make a joke about it, say you're allergic, whatever, if, if they could put the dog away. Right. If they don't, then you, you've, you've got to make your exit. I mean, you've, you've got to get out of there, particularly if it's an aggressive dog. Well, I would say only if it's an aggressive dog, because you don't know what it's going to do. It's not worth risking getting bit. Uh, and some of these dog bites can be deep puncture wounds, infection. I mean, we get a bite on our hands. That puts us out of work oh, for yeah. a while. So you can't, you can't risk that kind of thing. So you can, you can nicely, politely ask them to put it away. You can even talk about allergies or you can or talk about... Or put it, it's in their best interest. You really want to be able to focus on, on the job right. and, you know, get the troubleshooting done and, and do a good job and attention to detail is important and, you know, whatever. You can, you can sell it and just say, oh, you know, your dog's adorable, but, it, you know, he or right. she is very distracting and I'd really need you to put them away and I, I do the same thing even when it's a dog that's you know maybe it's a big goofy puppy or whatever totally non-threatening but the dog is coming and getting all over my tools well if i'm going to be taking an appliance apart and i'm going to have loose screws probably in my magnetic tray but whatever different panels and stuff like that i don't want the dog getting all over the stuff that i've disassembled and getting it out of order because then i have to reassemble it and i sort of disassemble and keep things in a specific order to help me with reassembly there's another angle too i mean that could be bad for the dog to step on a sharp part right. or things like that and just so you can say it's for your animal safety that's as well. the best way to couch it i think so it's always all about them mm -hmm. so you know how how can this is just to protect your animal ma'am and uh, or to if, make sure I do a good job right. for you. Yeah, so that's probably the best way to package that type of thing. Now, if it's if you're dealing with a bunch of yippy dogs, first of all, it's always why is it always the small dogs that are like the really yip, shrill little yippers, and they just they just get that shooting and kicking reflex going. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know, and that's all. You don't want to resort resort to kicking the customer's and, dog if you don't. But have there to. there ought to be a law against small dogs. These little freaks of nature that, with these screamy little voices, I mean, I just my foot just starts twitching, and I just start thinking football. Uh, no. well, but anyway, so what do you do about those when they're they're all screaming and yelling? Even when they put them away in a room and they're screaming and yelling, how do you handle that? You you've really done all you can do. Bring earplugs. I'm serious. Just mm -hmm. take the little foam earplugs and, and stick them in your ear like, like kind you do use on an airplane or whatever. You'd be amazed. Just cutting out that num amount of decibels and will just aid your concentration so much. Because you could be right into a really hairy troubleshooting situation. You're looking at a schematic, trying to track down some weird problem going on with a circuit. It takes a lot of sustained concentration sometimes. Well, it's hard to do that if you've got screamy little yipper, um, that even if it's put away in a room somewhere, but maybe it's like right next door and it's screaming the whole time, put in earplugs. It helps so much. So just a little tip I thought I'd pass on just to, mm -hmm. to aid in the concentration of being able to think clearly and get the job done, ultimately get it fixed. Yep, while maintaining a good positive uh, communication and with sanity. the customer. Maintaining your sanity too. Yep. And not getting bit. Yes. So um, anybody else have any interesting 
uh, customer conundrums. Yeah, let us know. Just yeah. get us know on, again um, uh, on our YouTube channel or uh, over at Master Samurai Tech blog or at Appliantology. I'll post the episodes over there as well. Just post comments there, whatever, if you'd like to see it. And you can subscribe to our podcast, just to remind you. You can subscribe on iTunes. Uh, also, tell your friends yes. and uh, tell your family and uh, tell, have your kids all listen in. Uh, we try to make it a family-friendly show, and I don't think I... Uh, so far. Yeah, I yes. I, I've been good. Very slight innuendo here and there, but yeah. nothing... Uh, that's so, all we're capable of, anyway. <laughs> so just and just uh, want to remind them of the web addresses where they can find us. MasterSamuraiTech.com and Appliantology.org. Appliantology.org. So, and remember, the Labor Day discount coupon is going on through this coming Sunday. So, and that's Labor Day 2015. No spaces, all one word. Labor Day 2015. Use it on the enroll page. 10% tuition discount. So, anything else? I think that's a wrap. All right. That's a wrap. We are so out of here. You guys have a great Labor Day. Hope everybody's uh, relaxing, enjoying the day, and uh, getting ready to get back at it tomorrow. So we'll talk to you guys later. Thanks for listening. <laughs>